Uh, we're going to continue on in our series in Isaiah, and I wasn't quite sure how to divide the text. Originally, I was going to just look at chapter 51, and then 52 next week, and then 53. Uh, so I was going to take this in three weeks, but I'm going to try to do it uh, just in this one time together. Uh, there's a lot of interconnection in the text, which I hope we'll be able to see. And 51 also continues on some of the themes that we've seen before in the book up until now. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Isaiah chapter 51. I'm going to read the first 11 verses of the chapter. So Isaiah 51, uh, verses 1 through 11. And then in a little bit, uh, we'll be reading some of the other sections as we go. This is the Word of God. Listen to me. You who pursue righteousness and who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were cut and to the quarry from which you were hewn. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who gave you birth. When I called him, he was only one man, and I blessed him and made him many. The Lord will surely comfort Zion and will look with compassion on all her ruins. He will make her deserts like Eden, her wastelands like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the sound of singing. Listen to me, my people. Hear me, my nation. Instruction will go out from me. My justice will become a light to the nations. My righteousness draws near speedily. My salvation is on the way, and my arm will bring justice to the nations. The islands will look to me and wait in hope for my arm. Lift up your eyes to the heavens. Look at the earth beneath. The heavens will vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment, and its inhabitants die like flies. But my salvation will last forever. My righteousness will never fail. Hear me, you who know what is right. You people who have taken my instruction to heart, do not fear the reproach of mere mortals or be terrified by their insults. For the moth will eat them up like a garment The worm will devour them like wool, but my righteousness will last forever, my salvation through all generations. Awake, awake, arm of the Lord, clothe yourself with strength. Awake, as in days gone by, as in generations of old. Was it not you who cut Rahab to pieces, who pierced that monster through? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made a road in the depths of the sea so that the redeemed might cross over? Those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. Before we consider this passage together, let's pray. Our Father, today we pause and we reflect that there is no greater relational privilege than to know you, the living God, as our Father. And we thank you for that. We thank you that we can know you as our Father through the work of your Son, Jesus Christ, on our behalf. We thank you that you are a God who delights to enter into relationship with people. We thank you that you are a creator. We honor you 
for the incredible brilliance of your creative imagination in making this world out of nothing, in forming people in your image. And Lord, we ask that we will image you well. We, we ask that not only will we uh, live as your image bearers in an ineradicable way uh, with our uh, constitution, but that we will also live out your image morally and well, that we will be righteous as you are righteous, that we will love as you love, that we will work for peace as you are a peacemaker. Help us to be your children by imitation. Uh, Lord, we know that today, uh, for many, is a, a day of celebration. We also know that today, for many, is a day of, of difficulty. And so we pray, Lord, that you will be present in everyone's circumstance, uh, whatever anyone's situation is in their life today. I just pray that your Spirit will minister to their heart, uh, that you will provide them with comfort and peace and strength, uh, that you will enable them to uh, process all of the things that uh, are part of their experience, and that they will feel your comfort and your presence and your strength with them. We thank you that you are a compassionate God. We thank you that you are a God who loves. And we ask that this morning we will enter into a little bit more of the fullness of the experience of what it means to be loved by you, the infinite holy God. And help us also to understand and appreciate more than ever the cost of our reconciliation to you, the cost of our redemption through the work of your Son. We ask this in his holy name. Amen. Now, we can move through uh, Isaiah 51 uh, with a little bit of speed, and the first bit of 52 as well, uh, because we've seen some of these themes already before uh, in this particular book. Uh, in fact, verse 11 of chapter 51, we have already seen in chapter 35 of verbatim. So there's a recognition here that Isaiah, again, he, he's often spiraling, he's cycling back, he's looking at the same themes through slightly different angles. Now, this one begins with a strong call for people of righteousness to listen to the Word of God. And one of the things that we've seen in Isaiah is that the righteous are characterized by hearing the Word of God. But it's also in the hearing of the Word of God that you become more righteous. And so this is a cycle. This is a feedback loop. You, know, you listen to God's Word, you do what He says, and you grow in righteousness. The more you grow in righteousness, the more you will be listening to what God says and active and eager in terms of implementing His Word. So the call is, listen, if you're seeking the Lord, if you're pursuing righteousness, which is sort of parallel, it's the same thing, Isaiah says, then look back. Look back to where you've come from. Remember Abraham, just, just one man. Remember Sarah, just one woman. And God put a special call on their lives. God called Abraham. We know uh, from other texts that, that Abraham is called out of pagan idolatry. And God calls him uh, to be his special follower in covenant relationship. When I called him, God says he was only one person. But I blessed him and made him many. He is the father of many. He is the father of a multitude. He is the father of many nations. And if that's the case, if I was willing to bless this person who was lost in idolatry, 
then how much more will I not bless this mighty nation that is in covenant with me? I blessed one person in covenant, and now look at this this nation of many people, his offspring, his descendants. They're in ruins now, but I will restore them. In the same way that I, in my grace and in my love and my matchless compassion, called him out of sin and shame and death, into life and covenant with me, now for his offspring, for this covenant nation, ruined and lost in sin and idolatry and exile, broken down, I'm going to restore them. I'm going to build them up. I'm going to comfort them and have compassion on them. In fact, this nation, symbolically, is in a desert, and I am going to make that desert like Eden. The wastelands are going to be like the garden of the Lord. I'm going to transform this broken barrenness into a paradise where I live. It's Eden regained. Through the sin of the people, Eden is lost. Through the glory and mercy of God, Eden is restored. And the result, as we've seen so often in Isaiah, the only proper response to the redemptive, restorative work of God is praise and adoration. Uh, The response is songs of joy and songs of thanksgiving. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and the sound of song. This is the promise of God uh, for those who will turn to Him, for those who will pursue righteousness and seek the Lord. No matter how broken down things are, even if things are broken down because of the causal reality of your sin, that is, even if your sin has necessitated these things, God is a God of compassion. If you will seek Him, he is a God who blesses and restores and transforms deserts into the Garden of Eden. So listen, he says, I'll teach you. My justice goes out. My righteousness is coming towards you. My arm will bring justice to the nations. That is, I am going to make everything right. The islands, that is, the ends of the earth, everyone will look to me. There is, there, there is no other. And I will act in such a way that all of the ends of the earth will take notice. Everyone will see my name. Everyone will see that I establish justice. Everyone will see my righteousness comes, and it comes speedily. My salvation is on the way. My arm will bring justice to the nations. And this is something that the righteous always need to hear. The thing is, it is impossible have any sense of righteousness, which, which again, in, in the most basic sense, just means to be on the right side of the standard, the, the correct side of the law, the correct side of, of the moral perfection of God and, and the rules that He has given. The more, the more you align with what's right, the more grievous it is to look at a world where so much is wrong, to look at all of the injustice, all of, all of the utterly unnecessary suffering, all that people do to each other, how often it seems that, that the guilty thrive and the innocent are downtrodden and oppressed and crushed. How often it seems that justice is never done. And God says, no, my righteousness is coming. Uh, My arm is going to bring justice to all the nations. This is something that I have noticed. I see it. All of the ends of the earth 
will wait in hope for my arm. There's so many things in life that we hope for. There's so many things in life that we wait for. We, we wait in hope. But the greatest thing of all that we wait in hope for is a certainty. And that certainty is that God will make things right. God will not ultimately allow injustice to flourish forever. There is a day of reckoning, a day of settling accounts where God will reveal His strength and He will work with His mighty arm to ensure that justice is done and is seen to be done. That is, on the day of the Lord, we will see that God actually balances all of the books, that no one gets away with anything, uh, that those who are mistreated, that those who are oppressed uh, are recompensed. The Lord will make sure that justice is done. Wait in hope for my arm. In contrast to the mortality of people, the end of verse 6 is, my salvation will last forever. My righteousness will never fail. And then at the end of verse 8, my righteousness will last forever. My salvation through all generations. And so this repetition here is in contrast to people. Let people attack. Let people oppress. Let people insult. What can mere mortals do to you? The salvation of God is eternal. Uh, The righteousness of God endures forever. There is nothing at all that people can ultimately do to prevent the righteousness and justice of God from being revealed. Nothing. There there is nothing that people can do to, to dismantle the righteousness of God. It will accomplish all of its purposes. And then the cry then, if this is true, the cry of the heart of the righteous is, then God do it. Awake, awake, arm of the Lord, clothe yourself with strength. We're waiting in hope for your arm. Awake! Do something. Let's see this. Awake as in days gone by. And then he has this, the imagery, which is clearly a cast to the Exodus. Rahab is, is one of the Egyptian gods uh, here in this text. And so it's the defeat of the Egyptian gods. And it's, it's the Exodus. It's bringing them out of slavery in Egypt, out of bondage, and out through the drying up of the sea, through the Red Sea, into the wilderness as the redeemed of the Lord. And so the cry is, God, you've liberated your people in the past, people who are oppressed in slavery, people who are under the thumb of the oppressor, people who are suffering brutal injustice. You, you, you arose and you, and you worked and you liberated them. Do it now. Because there's still a world filled with injustice. There's still a world filled with oppression and exploitation. God, arm yourself with strength. Do it again. Do it in our day. Let us see it. We wait in hope. But while we wait, we're not passive. We cry out for you to arm yourself with strength and to act as you've done in the past with a recognition that often the work of the Lord is also done through human instrumentation. That is, so we don't just pray, we act as much as we can in the spheres of influence that we have to battle these things as well. And this is one of the reasons that we're privileged to partner with an agency like Beginnings, uh, with with some of the reach in the community, the work that they do. This is one of the reasons why 
it was not a, a sacrifice but a privilege for us to partner with IJM in helping uh, combat sex slavery of children in the Philippines. You, you realize, whenever, whenever we're involved in anything like that at all, uh, the word sacrifice is probably the least applicable word in the human language for what we are doing with our money or with our time or with our prayers. It is nothing but an honor and a privilege to be involved in helping organizations that are actively combating through the power of the Lord some of these things around the world. And the result that we've seen before, verse, chapter 35, those the Lord has rescued will return. They're coming back. They will enter Zion with singing everlasting joy will crown their heads. Whatever crowns your head now, whether it's shame or sorrow or, or heartache or disappointment or whatever it is that you feel you're laboring under now, if you belong to the Lord one day, what's going to crown your head forever is joy, the crown that will never be taken away. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. We already talked about this in chapter 35, but it's like they're on their way to glory and everlasting joy. And, and, and gladness, sort of personified, gladness and joy are chasing them down. You know, the gladness and joy are fleet of foot. And, and so we're, we're sometimes we're just, we're just stumbling along the road. Oh, but gladness and joy are in pursuit of you. The, the hounds of heaven have your scent, and they're going to catch you. They're going to catch up to you. They're going to overtake you, and you'll be glad and filled with joy in an everlasting way. And sorrow and sighing, which may be your traveling companions now, maybe for far too many days and nights, they're going to flee away. They're going to run away. They won't be able to stand in the presence of the joy and gladness that God is giving His redeemed. I, even I, am He who comforts you, God says. Well, the rest of the chapter contrasts this. We've seen this many times with Isaiah. Oh, this is, the, this is the glory of those who pursue righteousness. Those, you start, interesting enough, you start out verse 1, those of you who pursue righteousness and seek the Lord. But you get to verse 11, you find out that, that there are things that are pursuing and seeking you too. Joy and gladness are seeking and pursuing you. God is actually seeking you first, which is why you're seeking Him at all. In contrast, the rest of the chapters are about those who persist in their wickedness and rebellion against God. They, they, they will not have joy and gladness. They, they don't want the presence and the blessing of the Lord. They, they resist Him. And so, they have nothing but wrath. Now, the question becomes, how is it that God can do this? How is it that God can bless these people who are broken down in exile? Remember, the reason that they're in exile is because of their sin. How can God make sinners who are, who are in rebellion against Him, who, who hate Him, and in so doing harm themselves and others, how can God bless those people? How is it possible? We know that He will, but the question is, how can He in terms of His justice? Just, just hold on to that for a moment. Chapter 52 starts again in this language should be familiar. Awake, awake! 
We've already seen that before. Before it was calling for the arm of the Lord to awake, but now it's calling for Zion herself to awake. Awake, awake, Zion, clothe yourself with strength. So the call is for the arm of God to awake with power. Now it's Zion to awake with strength. Put on your garments of splendor, Jerusalem, the holy city, the uncircumcised and defiled will not enter you again. Shake off your dust. Rise up. Sit enthroned, Jerusalem. Free yourself from the chains on your neck, daughter Zion, now a captive. So it's time for the people of God to wake up too. That's what the text is saying. Zion, you're, you're, you're in captivity. You're sitting in the dust, but you're actually a queen. It's time to awake. It's time to wake up. Clothe yourself with strength. Where does Zion get her strength from? Well, from the arm of the Lord. Clothe yourself in the strength that God will give you. Shake off the dust. Get rid of the dirt. Get up. Take your throne. You're not a captive. For this is what the Lord says. You were sold for nothing, and without money you will be redeemed. Without money you will be redeemed. To redeem means to buy back often used in slave context, in slave markets. Uh, if someone fell into debt and they, couldn't, they didn't have any money, they couldn't pay off their debt, then they would be sold as a slave so that their labor would pay off their monetary debt. Now, if you couldn't have any money, then you were sold as a slave unless, usually a kinsman, a redeemer came by and bought you. That is, they would pay off your debt to the person to whom you were indebted, and now you belong to, to your liberator. They could do with you what they wanted. You were their slave now. But often, of course, for the kinsmen, they would, they would buy their kinsmen out of slavery to release them into freedom. But monetary exchange was almost an intrinsic part of redemption. So here you're being told, you'll be redeemed but without money. Someone's being told, you'll be bought without money. You'll be paid for without money. Well, what is going to be the item of exchange then? What will redeem you besides money? And so just sort of tuck that away in your mind because you're not told right away. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. At first my people went down to Egypt to live. Lately Assyria has oppressed them. And now what do I have here, declares the Lord? For my people have been taken away for nothing, and those who rule them mock, declares the Lord. And all day long my name is constantly blasphemed. Therefore my people will know my name. Therefore in that day they will know that it is I who foretold it. Yes, it is I. Again, this mark, how do you know who the deity is? He tells the future and then accomplishes it. We've seen this in Isaiah so often. The people are oppressed and mocked, and God's name is blasphemed. So God is going to do something so that people stop blaspheming his name and know what his name actually is. The name here uh, connotes his whole character. Then this famous verse, verse 7, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, Your God reigns. Feet by synecdoche, uh, the, the messenger who comes to you to proclaim these things, how beautiful that messenger is. And, and the messenger is beautiful because the message is so beautiful. Peace, everything made right, good tidings, salvation. Now, again, how do you get all of these things? 
How does broken down, uh, enslaved Zion sitting in the dust, how can Zion be enthroned as a queen and be given peace and good tidings and salvation? Well, the one answer, the whisper here, or sort of the shout here, but isn't the full answer, is the reason you can have salvation and the reason you can have everlasting joy, the reason you can be enthroned as the queen is because your God reigns, because God is sovereign, uh, not the ancient oppressors of Egypt, not the oppressors of the Assyrians, uh, not the Babylonians who, who come in later and destroy Jerusalem and cart the people off into exile, uh, not later on in the time of, of the New Testament, not the Romans. Uh, and, and today, of course, in, in an updated sense, and I say this reverently, but you know, thank God, you know, it, it's, it's, it's not Donald Trump and it's not Justin Trudeau and it's not the government of China. It, it is God who reigns. And because it is God who reigns, there can be joy and salvation and glad tidings for His people. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. Why? When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted His people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. He's bought her. He's purchased her. But remember, you were sold for nothing. You will be bought. You will be redeemed without money. You'll be, you'll be redeemed, but without money. How is it that Jerusalem is redeemed? What is going on here? What is God doing? How is He redeeming His people? And so, so what you have is, is all of these things sort of set up. Verse 10, the Lord will lay bare His holy arm in the sight of all the nations. All the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Salvation and redemption, but How? How is it possible for this holy God, you remember Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. And Isaiah the prophet, in seeing a holy God, cries out, woe to me, I am undone, I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips, I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. How can people be blessed when they stand before such a holy God? The text promises you that there's blessing. It promises you joy and gladness. It, it promises you redemption. It promises you restoration. It promises you all of these things. But how? How? does the arm of the Lord accomplish these things? Because these things run in moral categories. It is not a matter of bare power. How can God be righteous and the Redeemer of the unrighteous? How can God be holy and exalted and bless these people? The answer and these are all very famous words, well worth going through at length, but we don't have time, so it's more of a bird's-eye view. The answer to all of these sort of riddles, the, the way to connect all of the dots, is by returning to the servant of the Lord, which the text does in chapter 52, verse 13. You will recall, as we've worked through Isaiah, the servant of the Lord is sometimes the nation of Israel fallen and ruined. Sometimes the servant of the Lord is Israel in an 
idealized sense, the doing all that Israel was supposed to be, to do, the epitome of Israel-ness, that is, the firstborn of God created to be a light to the nations. Israel, in chapter 49, uh, the servant of the Lord is Israel, but also has a ministry to Israel. And so we, we see that this, this servant is, is an individual who sort of represents the nation and has to redeem the nation as well. So the way that the arm of the Lord is revealed, the way that these, de- these dots are connected is by returning to the servant. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. The servant of the Lord is going to act successfully. In wisdom, he is going to do what is right, and he is going to accomplish the task that God has given him, and he is going to be exalted. He is going to be raised up. He is going to be highly exalted. Now, you read this verse, and as you work through contextually, 51, 52, bringing all of the other servant of the Lord texts along with you to get to this point, you're not surprised. The servant of the Lord acts wisely? Of course he does. The Lord blesses him? Yes, of course he does. He's highly exalted. He's raised up over the nations. He's enthroned? Yes, of course he is. He's the servant of the Lord. And and so at this point, you begin to see that there's probably some kind of connection between the, the work of God that's being described in 51 and 52 and the work of the servant of the Lord, which is going to cause the servant of the Lord to be raised and exalted. And so when you read that, you want to say this is going to be perhaps the climactic passage where we learn how exalted and honored the servant of the Lord is for all that he's done for his people. Here is where, where we are going to see how the servant of the Lord is honored by God. And it's, and it's an auspicious start. He acts wisely. He's raised and lifted up and highly exalted. So what do you expect will follow from that announcement? If you had just read that sentence and you were asked, what's going to be said next? Well, there may be some recounting of his heroism. There, there may be some, you know, accounting of his coronation. You know, there, there may be some description uh, of how, you know, he was triumphant and the people loved him. And what you don't expect at all is this. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. That's a parenthetical comment. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, his form marred beyond human likeness. What you're told here is the servant of the Lord is going to be treated in such a way that people who see him will not even barely recognize him as a human being. Marred beyond human likeness, just as many were appalled at him. And you stop and say, wait a minute. This is the one who's highly exalted by God, but people are appalled. Now, you may remember chapter 50, where he gives his back to be beaten, where his beard is pulled out, where people mock him. You say, I thought that was maybe almost an anomaly in the data. No, there are many who are appalled at him. But just as there are many who are appalled, 
can barely even recognize him as human. So he will sprinkle many nations. Now, this is a reference to the Old Testament law to cleansing. Sprinkling was, was an act of cleansing in a ritualistic sense. So many are appalled. He's so disfigured. But many nations will be purified through what he does. Kings will shut their mouths because of him. That is, they will be speechless. For what they were told, they will see. Or sorry, for what they were not told, they will see. What they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? Parallel construction to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's the same thing. To believe the message is to see the revelation of the arm of the Lord. And that's why it is helpful to draw forward from 51. Awake, awake, arm of the Lord. We wait in hope for your arm. Now, who has seen the arm of the Lord? Who sees the delivering power of the arm of God? Who sees the arm of God bring justice and righteousness to the nations? Who sees it? Only those who believe the report. Only those who believe the message. Believing the message stands in in sort of grammatical construction to be parallel with the arm of the Lord being revealed. In other words, seeing the revealed arm of the Lord is identical to believing the message of God. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. This is not promising. Uh, Dry ground, especially in, in, in this cultural context, uh, with climate, dry ground is ground where there's no growth at all. It's drought conditions. Now, we, according to our, our local agricultural experts and practitioners, we do not have a problem with dry ground today in this part of Ontario uh, when it comes to planting uh, our crops. Uh, but you can imagine if you, if you have just absolute drought, you, know, you, you can think of those pictures where, where you see ground that's so baked that it's literally cracked. You're not getting any life out of that. But God is the God who brings life out of nothing. He grew out of He was like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. That is, when this servant will not be noticeable, there won't be something that, that, that makes him stand out of a crowd in terms of appearance, nothing attractive. He was despised and rejected by mankind. Now, you're supposed to remember this, all of these descriptors are descriptors of the one who you begin by being told he will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. And that's why you have these contrasts, too, in the preceding chapters where don't worry about what mere mortals think of you. God's verdict is the one that matters. Let people insult you. Let people abuse you. God can lift you up. We've seen that before in the chapters in 51 and 52. And now it's applied to the servant of the Lord. He's despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. And this makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. This is the servant of the Lord. 
This is the one who is wise. This is the one who God exalts, and people hate him. People reject him. They want nothing to do with him. They hide their faces from him. And we do read these, we do read these things far too quickly. It is... It is awfully painful to be despised and rejected. The life of the servant isn't a life which is which is one in which there are times of suffering, times of pain. But suffering and pain characterize his life. So you can refer to him as a man of suffering. He belongs to suffering. He suffers all the time. He's familiar with pain. We held him in low esteem. God exalts him highly. We hold him in low esteem. But why was he a man of pain? It's because surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. And here is where you have the beginning of the solution to all of the problems. Here is where you begin to lightly trace out how to connect the dots. He's a man who's familiar with pain because he's bearing the pain of other people. Here you get that whisper of substitution. What he is doing is not because of what he deserves. It's not intrinsic to his psychology. It is because he is intentionally, voluntarily taking upon himself the pain and suffering of other people. Yet, we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. That is, people thought that he was getting what he deserved rather than recognizing that he was bearing the pain and sin of other people. But, regardless of what we thought... He was pierced, this is strong language for death, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. This is substitution. This is substitution in its strongest form. He's run through for our transgressions. He's pierced for our transgressions. He is utterly crushed and ground down and destroyed for our iniquities. He is innocent of these things, and yet he is treated as if, as if he were guilty of them. He is the substitute. What we deserve falls on him. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. I hear that. Earlier there's this proclamation, oh, there's salvation, oh, there's glad tidings, oh, there's peace for you. Everything made right, harmony and balance, the desert transformed into Eden. How is it that there can be peace for, those, for people like us? How is it that we can be healed? The punishment that brings us peace fell on him. 
because the servant of the Lord is the substitute and is pierced and crushed for our sin, because He bears all of the wrath of God in our place, all of a sudden our wounds are healed, and peace from God and with God is given to us. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. We have all ran away from the shepherd into danger, and all of that rebellion has been laid on this one person, the servant of the Lord, who then, to shift the sheep metaphor, in verse, in verse 6, we're the sheep running away. In verse 7, he's the lamb. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. So we are like straying sheep, but he is the Passover lamb. That's the imagery. He, he's that, that lamb without blemish or defect. He, he's that lamb who in faith dies and, and, and the blood is, is put, covering the household on the door, on the doorframe, the lintels. And when that lamb without blemish or defect dies, it is a substitute. And the people live on its life by eating it and profit from its life through its substitutionary death, and it is its blood which covers them so the angel of death passes by so that God can liberate them from slavery and bring them into the promised land. That's the imagery. And here, we all like sheep have gone astray, but there's a Passover lamb. But the Passover lamb is a human being. The Passover lamb is the servant of the Lord. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? He was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people he was punished. That is, it is through injustice and oppression that he's cut off from the land of the living. That is a clear reference to death. To be cut off from the land of the living is, is a Hebrewism to mean death. He dies oppressed and with injustice. No one protested about it. He was abandoned in the end, and his death is for the transgression of the people of God. He was assigned a grave. That is, he's dead. He's assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. He's dead and he's buried because he has borne the penalty of the sin of the people. Yet... Despite the oppression, despite the violence and injustice, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Now, this verse can only be understood in context of the overarching redemptive plan of God. So, it is God's predestined plan of salvation that the servant of the Lord will suffer and die for the sake of the people of God. In that sense, it is the Lord's will. It is the will of the Lord and the will of the servant that this take place. They are united in their desire to bring about redemption, no matter what the cost is. It is the Lord's will for him to be pierced. It is the Lord's will to crush him. It is the Lord's will for him to suffer because it is through the work of the servant, and the servant voluntarily comes to do this. It is through the work of the servant that people will be redeemed without money. They're redeemed through blood. 
And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offering and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. See, this verse makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. He's dead, but he sees his offspring. He's dead, but he prolongs his days. And the will of the Lord prospers in his hand. How is that possible? After he has suffered. But his suffering is suffering to and through death. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. In substitution, he bears their iniquities, but through, his, through the bearing of their iniquities, they're justified. That is, they're pronounced right in the sight of God. They're made righteous. They're declared righteous. And he sees this. He sees his spiritual offspring and he rejoices. He's satisfied with what God has done. It was worth it to him. All of the suffering, all being crushed, all being pierced through, going to death, being the substitute, it was all worth it to him. He sees the will of the Lord prospering in his hand. He, he sees the light of life, the other side of death. And many are justified because he bore their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. That is, he receives an inheritance you know, post-mortem. He's dead, but he's receiving an inheritance among the great. He divides the spoils. It's a pretty active, alive thing to be doing. He divides the spoils with the strong. Why? Because he poured out his life unto death. That is, he's rewarded because he died and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. You say, this text actually, at the very beginning seemed to be helpful, and now it is a shocking rat's nest of confusion. How is any of this clarifying anything? This is getting more and more opaque. This is getting more and more impossible. The Passover lamb doesn't come back to life. How on earth can the servant of the Lord suffer and be pierced through and die as the substitute, but then also see the light of life and prolong their days and see their offspring and, and divide the spoils with the strong and receive the inheritance. And how is it possible that you come full circle back to verse 13? How is it that the servant of the Lord is highly exalted when he has suffered like this and ended his life this way? Well, you have to wait centuries Until Isaiah 40 begins to be fulfilled. The voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. And all of a sudden, you're rushing in the Gospels. From the opening accent of Isaiah 40, the very open, Mark is, Mark is the first Gospel written. Mark basically begins with Isaiah 40. And you're speeding on to the last week of Jesus. Mark's gospel has sometimes been called you know, a, a passion story with an extended introduction. You know, he, he's just getting you there. He's rushing you there. He's rushing you from Isaiah 40 to Isaiah 53. That's the trajectory. Oh, the voice of one crying, and the one prepare the way for the Lord. And then John the Baptist, that same voice crying, says, look, behold the Lamb of God, the, the Passover Lamb, behold the Lamb of God who does What? He takes away the sin of the world. And then you have Jesus saying, oh, the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to be served and to give his life as a ransom, that is, as a redemption for many. 
And there he is on the cross, pierced through, despised and rejected, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, mocked by people, disfigured by beating and a crown of thorns. And he dies. And he's buried with the rich in his death, the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, surrounded by the criminals on the cross. And three days later, he sees the light of life in the resurrection. Jesus Christ absorbs all of the evil and oppression and hatred of the world so that sinners can be restored, redeemed without money, but at infinite cost. He takes upon himself the evil and the oppression and the sin of the world so that all the nations may hear that they can be righteous through the work of the servant of the Lord. And he, in his ascension to the right hand of the Father, is precisely highly exalted. Exalted on high, raised up. And it's here where you see, you can't help but see so clearly The substitutionary atonement of the servant ends in death, but not full stop, semicolon. Yields to life and glory. Who's that? Who's the servant of the Lord? There can only be one. There can only be one answer. 700 years before Christ... The Lord says, this is what I will do. That's a lot of centuries to wait in hope for the arm of the Lord. But he always comes. He always accomplishes what needs to be accomplished in his time. Well, that's our Savior. Highly exalted. Substitutionary death resurrected. That's the power of God to conquer sin and death. That's the arm of the Lord revealed in strength. Believe the report. Who has believed the message? You believe this message, you'll find the truth of the power of God in salvation through the servant of the Lord, who we can, after Isaiah 53, confidently name as Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask our musicians to come and lead us in a closing song.